Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's just me, James, today, and I'm joined today by James Cordero and Jacqueline Arellano. Um, they're both from Border Kindness, which is a group that does border aid, uh, chiefly like water drops and, and support uh, to keep people alive as they're making their journey across the desert here in, in San Diego. Um, is that a fair characterization of what you guys do? Yeah, uh, we do work all across the border in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, currently, the two of us, we're based out of San Diego, yeah. but we do most of our uh, water drops in eastern San Diego County and Imperial County. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. organization is based primarily in Mexicali, Baja California on the Mexico side, and that's where it was founded Okay, cool. in response to the arrival of the migrant caravans in 2018. We've personally been doing drops since 2016, but we brought the program over to Border Kindness a little over a year ago. And we operate programs on both sides of the border. Primarily, James and I are involved with Water Drop, but we also, as an organization, have a school on the Mexico side. We have operated a pro bono clinic on the Mexican side. And currently, we're providing direct aid with um, the families of migrant farm workers in Imperial and Riverside counties. Nice. Yeah, there's a lot of very important things that uh, don't get enough money or attention. So. You said you started about a year ago, but you but you've been doing the border drops for what's that seven? That's a long time, seven years, yeah, um, since 2016. And I wonder, like, if we could start by, and uh, we can get into some of the details later. But um, I've been reporting on the border for that long, and there certainly have been notable changes. And I wonder what changes you've seen, like. If, we go back to like pre-2015, 2016, like that was before the whole wall shenanigans. Um, so like, do you guys want to describe like what changes you've seen in, in patterns of migration and like, I guess how safe that journey is or, or isn't and how that's changed? Well, as far as patterns, I think it's yeah. definitely increased. 
mm-hmm. it's definitely increased by the year. Um, as far as seeing the amounts of supplies being used, the traces of you know migrants crossing through in the desert and the mountains, seeing the amount of border patrol apprehensions and interactions with uh, people that cross and the overall militarization of the border yeah yeah and i think like as far one of the biggest changes that we've seen on the border overall and that has reflected in the water drop as well is a change in the demographics of people that are coming through even as recently as when we started in 2016 there were um much more of like the trend that was generally kind of like stereotypically a case of like who was crossing, which was mm-hmm. men of Mexican origin of working age crossing to work and send fam- send money back to their families. Yeah, that's obviously still a large um, part of who is coming through. But in the most recent three to five years, especially um, the demographics are changing not just by country of origin to include all over the world and reflecting like this global migration crisis that's going on but also the reasons and like the desperation is changing so now it's not just like economic migration there is asylum seekers refugees and it is just changing in tone of like why they're migrating and in what ways they're migrating yeah yeah definitely i've noticed that and like as the climate continues to change, right? Like more and more people come from those countries and you've seen that too, that are most heavily impacted by climate change. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And that makes a journey as it gets hotter and hotter in the desert, like that makes a journey more and more perilous, I guess. They've come from farther too. And they're the least sometimes like not at all familiar with the weather, with the terrain, what they're up against with like how you have to move in border mm-hmm. town. If you're not from a border town, you don't really know how to move and who to trust or more importantly, who not to trust. Yes. yeah. And the people, there's a lot of pitfalls to just arriving at the border, even from like um, internal migration, like within Mexico, people arrive to the border and don't really know how to operate like the day to day there. And um, it's really made an already incredibly dangerous situation, like just inc- just totally perilous. As more people have migrated from different countries around the world, you're also seeing people who have been on that journey just to get to the United States line for longer amounts of time that, you know, instead of maybe just weeks or a month, you're talking about months on months that people have been traveling, you know, by foot, by train, by bus, you know, sometimes by plane, however they can. And we've seen, you know, We've seen like invoices for like hotel stays that people traveling from Turkey came and they stayed like in Cancun for like a month. So like, I mean, people are gone from their from their homelands, you know, longer amounts of time now that, you know, isn't a comfortable thing. So it's not like you can relax and not like you can, you know, rest and, you know, mentally and physically everything like that. So it's definitely making that part harder for for people crossing yeah for sure like i'm seeing more and more migrants from from africa and like i know they are very much like it's the community for them is hard to find sometimes like you know that like there are different spaces um for them and like they they end up in like distinct spaces from from other 
like migrants who are coming from other areas, and I know it can be very perilous for them. Like you say, just just moving around border towns and, and navigating the pitfalls of that. And yeah, it, it's it's becoming like a more and more difficult and, and I guess kind of complicated issue. But I think what's not particularly complicated is that like no one should have to walk across the desert without water, right? Like that, it's it's pretty basic. So maybe we could go through what a water drop is. And like what just if we could walk through like, you know, how far you guys walk, what what you're leaving out there, what you find that people take, what you find that they need in their journeys. And and you were talking about the receipts. I found tons of those and, and plane tickets and stuff like the things that you find that help you understand how better to help people, I guess. You want to talk about like how far the drops are generally and like all of that? Yeah. So yeah. right now. It just depends on the the season, the weather, you know, the the length of the, the drops. Uh, we hike, you know, a lot of our drops. We also utilize four by fours to get us closer to areas to start our hikes, so we don't have to walk even more miles. Uh, that helps us out in you know being able to carry more supplies, you know, with less walking in some areas. But when it's uh, cooler times and the temperatures are you know below. 80 degrees you know we can hike you know anywhere up to i think the max that we did was like just about 20 um but on the average you know the cool weather hikes will do you know right around 10 miles or so and then when it gets hot um and the desert gets really hot out there you know like over 110 degrees on a constant basis and starting to get over 120 degrees you know, we can maybe do about five miles by foot. We've kind of ran a trial and error this season as far as trying to push further to see how far we can go. Yeah. And we attempted seven miles and that, I mean, we, we all were gassed right around the five mile mark. So like we have to, you know, set limits because not only is the distance, but the time spent underneath the sun yeah. without shade. And that exposure is, you know, what drives the internal body temperature up and everything like that. And if you don't have a chance to cool down, that's when your body starts to wear out. You get heat exhaustion and, you know, we want to avoid heat stroke at all costs. Yep. And we're trying to, you know, make sure everyone's safety is accounted for. So we have to kind of cap that in the in the summertime to like five miles. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. We have to definitely make pushes in the winter to stockpile the areas that are just simply not accessible in the summer months and um, be strategic and like, paying attention to what are entry points and can we hit those entry points or exit points? So maybe we can't um, really access a route throughout its entirety, but we can hit certain points of it more um, safely as a team during these like incredibly hot months, but we leave supplies of water, food and protective clothing and the protective clothing varies depending on season so, I mean, a lot of people don't really take into consideration how cold it gets in these areas. It gets well below freezing in the yeah. winter mm-hmm. in the mountains of East San Diego County. It snows. Um, you know, some drops have gotten snowed out. We haven't been able to to complete them because of the snow. And um, so the protective clothing varies in the summer. It's things like bandanas, um, cooling towels, hats, socks we leave throughout the year. Um, people's footwear not being appropriate almost yeah, always. 
Yeah. Almost always. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a blister can be a death sentence out there. So if you get a blister and you're not able to keep up with your group, there's a really good chance that you're going to get left. So something like having dry socks to change into can very well save somebody's life. So we leave socks throughout the year, pop top cans of food, and of course, water. Yeah, in the wintertime, we leave sweatshirts, beanies, like mittens, gloves, scarves, um, jackets, sometimes puffy jackets, sometimes blankets, um, you know, stuff to keep people warm when the temperatures, you know, can be freezing for, you know, most of the day, you know, in those, you know, harsh months of like January and February where Eastern San Diego County gets the, like, the winter storms, the freezing cold, you know, when roads get shut down, we can't even access. So as Jacqueline mentioned, you know, when it is cooler, uh, we try to go as much as we can, as far as we can to stockpile as much as possible for when the weather prohibits us from doing so otherwise. Yeah. And just to give people a sense of like the temperature swings, like I've been in the mountains down by the border at like 20 degrees Fahrenheit, which is like uh, minus 10 ish Celsius, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, also at, at 120, which is like almost 50 degrees Celsius. And, and so you can, they didn't swing that much in one day, but there are days when it's above 40 degrees Celsius and also below freezing in the same day. Like it's, um, it can be really, yeah, it's a perilous place. It's, that's why people don't live there as a rule. Like it, it's not a place that's kind to people. Um, so I wonder, like a lot of people, I know we did a series on Title 42. We spoke to a lot of people and a lot of people reached out and they like, they want to help. And I understand that the border, I think for a lot of people, is like, I think reporting on the border as a, as a rule is not great. Like, like we, we tend to see migrants as numbers and not as people a lot when, when people report on the border, right? And that, that's kind of, it happens with, with more liberal outlets as well as more right-wing outlets. But I wonder, like, A, how people who aren't in town, like if you're not in, if you don't live in the borderlands, right? It, it's say you live in the middle of America. Like, how can they help? What, what can they do to kind of support the process that you're doing, making this horrible thing a little kinder? We have um, on our, all of our social media and as well as on our website, um, ways that people can help. Um, we have wish lists for items if people help want to contribute in that way. And that's literally like contributing the items that we leave. We also have um, donation links. So if people want to help financially, that goes a huge way in order to um, facilitate everything that we do. Um, it's, I mean, gas is incredibly expensive. Yeah. Um, the supplies that we don't get donated by a wish list have to be purchased, that sort of thing. So ma- providing material aid is one way of, of contributing. And then aside from that, I think just following along um, with this work and sharing it and changing the conversation, because like, as you said, reporting on the border can be really tricky um people tend to not just utilize migrants but utilize the border as a region um in order to have talking points for either like media outlets or political campaigns or that sort of thing and the border gets treated as sort of like its own foreign area that's not re- related to either country like nobody wants to take responsibility for it yeah. and you know residents of the united states also are complicit in that because they don't really they just talk about the border they don't say like this is something that's happening in my country 
So I think sharing and discussing and, and becoming informed of what's going on and also feeling like that kinship and ownership of like, Hey, this is happening. I mean, for people, it doesn't have to be as far as like the middle of the country. A lot of people in San Diego don't really engage in work. They don't don't bother, you know, it feels Mm -hmm. like so far away, even though it's like 20 minutes away. Meanwhile, people are, are dropping dead so close to where people live and they choose to turn a blind eye. So I think um, kind of demystifying that for ourselves and sharing in that, it goes a long way as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's very true. It's always amazing to me, like how like 2018 or the, the other big one, I guess, would be the end of Title 42, which was this year in May. Like people will become more aware of what's happening and turn up. And like, it's so very radicalizing for a lot of people in a positive way, like engagism in a way they haven't been engaged before, but it's, uh, I know it, it's like, it, it shouldn't be like, we shouldn't be something we ever get used to how like cruel our border infrastructure is and what it does for us. But people are just blown away every time. Absolutely. Like, yeah. It, it, but it, I think you're right. Like witnessing it is very important. Even if you, you know, if you can't donate financially or if you can't get down here. Yeah, definitely. Just sharing stuff that, you know, if, you know, our organization posts something on social media, you know, I mean, it has to be taken as the truth because we're out there firsthand. We're the ones on the ground seeing, reporting back. And by sharing that, you get people, you know, in different parts of the country or even, you know, different parts of the world seeing like the realities of the U.S.-Mexico border because, you know, most people in the United States don't know if they don't, don't see it, don't live near it. Yeah. So that's, you know, something that most people rely on the media and what they see on the nightly news. And, you know, even that, you know, the big media outlets don't take the most realistic or don't share the most realistic uh, parts of the border. Yeah. You know, only to, you know, cater to their, you know, their sponsors or cater to their crowds. And so a lot of people will get like the headlines, but they don't get the the real deal, like, you know, what's going on down the border. And so sharing is is a, a big part of, you know, how the word spreads about the work that we do in other organizations as well. Yeah, I think that's very, very valid. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was interesting to me recently, I don't know if you guys saw this, but like the the floating border barrier in Texas. Um, yeah. Like very like this week, people have been reporting that it has like blades on it, which it does, and that's fucked up. Like they shouldn't. It's it's horrible. But like it was kind of illustrative that I guess none of the other none of the national outlets had someone who'd seen it because the blades have been there for like months. When the prototype sat there, they were in the 2020 solicitation to like. Um, it it just seemed odd to me that it, someone had to tweet a video for them to like understand because like obviously no one had walked up to it and checked it out. Which, which I don't know. It, 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 I think it's hard to do border reporting in New York, personally. But uh, like, unless <laughs> I guess you're you're interested in the northern border. Um, so I wanted to ask about Title Forty Two because I think our listeners are pretty well informed on like what that was and what happened before and after that. So did you guys notice when that came into effect? Um, just to recap, I guess, for people, Title 42 allowed Border Patrol to bounce people straight back um, south without processing them, um, and uh, in nearly all cases without hearing their, their claims for asylum if they had. Um, and then those people were sometimes laterally translated across the border to a to a border town where they may not have had contacts or family or any resources. Um, and it often resulted in those people finding themselves in an even more difficult situation than they already were or trying to cross... Um, in more difficult and dangerous places to avoid that. Um, so did, did you guys notice any changes like around, and that came in what, March of 2020, as soon as they could, as soon as they found an excuse in, in COVID? Oh, uh, not so much from what we see, because we don't come across people too often face to face. We did notice that once the policy was put into place, 
meaning Title 42 and, you know, with the pandemic starting, we did notice a, a big uptick on the amount of people coming through. We've seen, you know, before that, you know, just a handful of people maybe like that we'd come across. Yeah. A lot of times those people crossing at nighttime and it wasn't something that we came across much, but after that went into effect in 2020, we started running into a lot more people. We started seeing people that knew, you know, somewhat of, you know, the policy and, and that people would try multiple times every day to, you know, cross through. And if yeah. they got apprehended and got, you know, taken into Mexico, they try again that same day. And so we noticed a lot more of our supplies being used, a lot more foot traffic. Uh, and a lot more, you know, interactions with us. Uh, we started seeing a lot more interactions with, you know, Border Patrol and, and people crossing through. And so when the policy was coming to an end, the only thing that we really saw increase was the amount of people trying to get in before, you know, quote unquote, got yeah. closed off. You know, before like the the bans would go into effect and, you know, like the the no, you know, you can reenter for a, a you know, certain amount of years and all that kind of stuff. So like the camps in Hakumba, you know, yeah. you, you see, you know, thousands of people showing up um, as that. You know, stopped as Title 42 stopped, we really can't notice too much yet that less people are crossing through compared to the beginning, the middle of the policy. Um, our supplies are still being used at a high rate. Yeah. Uh, still see a, a fair amount of traffic come through, you know, these, these corridors and everything like that. So um, it, it's kind of hard on our end, but, you know, we also know that people who do cross um, not at a port of entry by foot, whether it's over a fence, whether it's around a fence, whether it's through the desert, over the hills. We know that people are still being um, apprehended, processed, and released with their asylum claims. So it's hard, as you know, on the border to know exactly what's going on because a policy can say one thing. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Like the, the <laughs> yeah. presidential administration can say one thing. The DHS can say one thing. And completely different is happening, you know, right right there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't really say, honestly, how much it's it's changed from our perspective. I think when these things happen, like, it's always really difficult because, like, like I think the three of us are aware of, there's the things that are put in place and they're, that's how they're going to be applied in theory. And then those of us that have been doing this work can anticipate how it's going to have an impact in practice. So like the things that are occurring now in order to so-called like curb the influx of people like um, using an app or, or like having like bans on certain things like all of these things like we know and and we don't have like any faith that they were put in in good faith and we know like that we can anticipate okay 
you're going to be banned if you don't go in through these like really ridiculously inaccessible means and that that word is going to get around that people are going to freak out they're not going to bother and they're going to hit the desert and that's what we're seeing like whether we can actually like attribute it directly to like these policy changes what i think we can attribute it more directly to is like one global migration it regardless of policy is increasing all over the world and that desperation doesn't like really wait for any kind of policy change um Two is like the misinformation and sort of like chatter that people are hearing about like this policy is changing. Oh, I heard that like if you don't use this app, they're going to put you in jail. And like just like literally these things that we're hearing on the border, um, that is funneling people directly into the desert because they want to avoid any kind of interaction with Border Patrol, even if they have like what would be a, um, you know, like an asylum claim. Mm -hmm. People aren't trusting because there's so much change and uncertainty at like a policy level there's no accessibility to this information there's no clarity to this information nobody knows what's going on whether it's people that are working in border aid or people that are seeking asylum so people are just you know taking their chances and hitting the desert and regardless of the policy change like ever since the last like you know like we said like three to five years um the increase has been um like exponential every single year it just continues increasing um i wanted to add in is that so the title 42 policy was used you know in conjunction with the you know national emergency with covid and all that kind of stuff with the country you know ending the the national emergency they couldn't you know couldn't justify keeping title 42 in effect and in a way i feel that the administration was just playing you know political chess and using people vulnerable people as pawns and so the rhetoric coming out and you know the you know we're taking a hard stance and this that and the other and in a crackdown on immigration and that I I feel was the the current presidential administration just trying to appeal to a larger audience mm-hmm. or when the election comes up uh next year you know can say hey look did this did that did this and the way the numbers have been skewed for apprehensions you know, that's when you'd have, like, say, in, in San Luis and Yuma, Arizona, yeah. you would see, you know, hundreds and thousands of people every day showing up to present themselves for asylum. Those all got recorded as apprehension numbers. Yeah. So you've got in one month, you know, however many, you know, thousands. Now, Title 42 ends. Now that number shrinks down. Now that looks better. That looks tougher on, you know, immigrants. And it looks like you're doing this, that, and the other. Meanwhile, you have people just, you know, being vulnerable, being, you know, in limbo, you know, on the other side of the border, or you have them taking to the mountains and deserts and, and taking a dangerous trek just so they can be apprehended and, you know, plead their case and try to get asylum and try to get released into the United States. So people that way are, are being used 
as pawns in, in this political theater that we always talk about is always <laughs> it doesn't matter the, the administration whether it's blue whether it's red whether it's orange whether it's old whether it's you it's know money it's all money and unfortunately you know we have to constantly like dispel a lot of that false narrative that comes out and it it gets exhausting but i mean it's what we have to do because you're not going to find that out any other way yeah you're really not um, I think that's an excellent point. Like, and the point about apprehensions is good, right? They always reported, and I've heard like NPR do this: report apprehensions as if they're individuals, which they were not under Title Forty Two. Like, if you cross five times in a day and get apprehended and sent back five times, that's five apprehensions. It's one person, um, and and they were deliberately using that to make this to seem like more people were coming. And as you say, now it will seem like less because that doesn't happen anymore. Um, and I think your point about like the Jacqueline, the points about the, the the misinformation is super crucial and one that again often isn't reported. But like, I'm not a lawyer uh, and and I can't give people legal advice. But constantly when I'm in Tijuana, when I, when I'm in um, Sonora, when when anywhere where I'm like on the southern side of the border or on this side of the border, people will ask me. Or when the people are trapped in between the two fences that constitute the border, um, people will say, "Hey, have you heard this? Hey." I got this and they'll play like voice messages on WhatsApp often or show me a WhatsApp and we'll go over like, that's not my understanding. You know, like, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, but, but it's, it's, I, I understand you're vulnerable, you're scared. And this shit, like I have a PhD and, and speak all those concerned languages and I don't understand it fully. Like it, it's, it's complicated and petrifying if this is your only hope of like a dignified life. And, it, it, I think it's something that people don't understand is how hard it is for those people to get decent information about like what they're quote unquote supposed to do. Um, especially mm -hmm. when we have this app, which like I don't have a ton of foyers in around the app, but I don't think I'll ever get any documents back from the feds to be honest. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's atrocious. I think. It's one ridiculous. Thing, yeah. To, no. And then information that people receive isn't even accurate. Like, so whenever there it is that somebody like say um, has come to like our office downtown in Mexicali and like, you know, brought in their paperwork and say, like, I have a court date there. Like there was a time like during, um, you know, MPP and all of that, mm -hmm. like where people were being given court dates on Sundays or being given court dates. <sighs> in um texas when they were sent back after their arrest in arizona to mexicali like just crazy stuff like like if people are even lucky enough to get somebody to help guide them through the process it's not even like a certainty that the information that they're provided is even going to be accurate on purpose like people are given inaccurate information to wade through this process that doesn't seem to make sense to anyone um, it, it's, it's wildly like convoluted. I mean, that's the intention, right? Like it's not yeah. meant to be navigated in any way. No, no, it's not. It's meant to put people off, I think. And like, even with the work that our friends at Al Tualado do and other legal aid groups, like I was speaking to a Ethiopian friend who I met in Tijuana and he lives in the U S and he helps other folks now who arrived more recently. And he was saying that like, getting a lawyer to represent you can cost you maybe five grand, maybe 12. And, and you might not have the legal right to work. Right. So wh where is that money supposed to come from? And then do you know, if, if your language is, uh, 
you know, Aromo or something, it's that much harder to navigate that system, to find useful resources, to explain it to you. And, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, people like to talk about like how, I don't know, that their family did legal migra- legal quote unquote migration when there weren't these checks in place and they didn't have to do any of this shit. And uh, I don't know, it, it's, I don't think people realize how brutalizing the system is until like they've seen it firsthand. That the code is the point. Like the cruelty yeah. and the confusion, the like putting people in danger is the whole point. And mm-hmm. it's intentional. Like, so if somebody's there and like you said, like they speak, they're, they're not able to even like wrap their heads around the process, let alone access like the resources in order to navigate that system. Mm-hmm. Then a coyote approaches them and tells them like, oh, I can take you over here to Romorosa. All you have to do is pay me 300 American instead of 5,000 for this like, eh, you're probably not going to win that case. The town's a mile away. The town's a mile away and it's a straight shot and you'll get there in half a day and then you're good to go and i mean we've heard the most wild stories like even from people in the middle of the desert lost saying they told me it was two mile walk and that there was they were hiring in the town on the other side of that hill yeah like and and i mean like who wouldn't at that point it's like you don't have a country to go back to yeah like it's no longer like oh i'm fleeing my i'm migrating from my country because there's no work no there is no country to speak of at least not for you right and you're here and this coyote presents you this opportunity like so it's misinformation and exploitation like every single step of the way and a lot of the time people's most um straightforward avenue is through the desert even though it's Mm -hmm. like unbelievably hard and very very often deadly that's like the surest shot that they have and they take it because i mean who wouldn't yeah, no, it's it's not like yeah, like you say, people aren't like you know doing the numbers and thinking they'll make more money in the U.S. It's like I will die if I stay at home, or like someone mm-hmm. has already killed someone I love, and I have to leave now. And especially when like the Trump administration, like at the end, if people aren't aware, like towards the end of the Trump administration, Trump started making claims in presidential debates about the number of miles of wall he was he had built. Um, that as far as I can work out, he pulled out of his ass, and then. The like then they they started rushing to build more wall, um, and they they I I I asked them how they came up with that number, and then they like they just did this thing where they were like, oh well, we repaired this much wall, and there were like eight miles of border wall prototype, and like yeah, cool man, um, like they they yeah. didn't build that much wall, but they started skipping the harder parts, right? Like Valley of the Moon, um, even that boulder pile outside Hakumba, like there are areas that that don't have wall. Um, and those are the areas that are harder. And then that's where people try and cross. And like, I love to go outside. I'm, I'm a pretty fit person. And like Valley of the Moon is hard going. Like if, if you're not going up the road, like that's tough travel. And, and that's where people don't have a choice but to cross, right? Right. Yeah. That's where, and that's where like you, in May it was, I think with the first, second week of May, mm-hmm. when you know, just a few days before Title 42 was ending, that's where thousands of people came through. Yep. Was through that Valley of the Moon area down into the town of Hukumba. And a lot of people, I mean, we're talking about, you know, thousands came through there. And a lot said that they paid upwards to $1,000 a head to Coyotes that brought them there and said, hey, when you get down there, you just follow this road. 
once you get down to the bottom, there's gonna be a buzz waiting for you. It'll take you in. And then they got stranded for days after going through that terrain, the temperature, that's when like the, the season really started shifting. So the nights were really cold. The, the daytime highs were pretty hot. And I mean, that was the, you know, designed, you know, cruelty the invasion that gave that gave the semblance of the invasion that right. they wanted. because you yeah. could yeah huddle people together and then uh claim that you weren't detaining them there right exactly but they weren't free to leave they said the border patrol told them that they'd arrest them if they left the yeah it, i mean I, I say camp loosely because it was just like out in an open field yeah with that people you know cut down branches and turn into shelters and use areas that they cut down for like fires campfires at night to stay warm yeah and you know border patrol probably didn't expect that a people locally in hukumba were going to care or b that the the word would get out and so their cruel practices that they were um enacting on like the first day or two of people showing up and being stranded no food no water then it kind of backfired and then you know i believe you went out there as well you saw how many people showed up to to care and like we were working around the clock to try to you know organize and and make food prepare food pack collect donations everything and you know that's i've gone through that terrain and you know after all that was closed down and looking through as you know as we did like trash cleanups and people you know would have their last remaining food and water that you could see like coming yeah. through across you know the area where they were brought to and like people shedding clothes because the temperatures were so you know warm during the daytime and then just wondering like okay so they shed their clothes and now they're like freezing down at the bottom of the hill and the terrain's too tough to go all the way back up yeah and you know they, it yeah the, there's no fence over there and the fences you know we've said have always been kind of built for the most part where people can see them mm -hmm. so it gives the appearance to the rest of the country that's not out there that there's a fence across the whole border and right. you know go into a lot of areas where we see that that's not the case and also we see where border fences stop and migration makes its way right around the edge of that yeah, in every time. But yeah. the distance now has increased longer for the walks because instead of just being able to, to walk through like an open area, now you have to go miles out of the way to get around to an opening in the fence or go up and over a mountain. And, you know, doing that in the summertime, you exhaust yourself from the, the strenuous hike on top of the unbearable heat, and then you pass away, you know, an eighth of a mile from a fence, you know, as someone that we know that happened to them a couple of years ago. So it's, um, yeah, as you're saying, like the fences and, and like where they're not put, it's, it's just a point of cruelty and part of the prevention through deterrence policy that's been going on for, you know, almost 30 years now. And, um, yeah, it doesn't the, work. Yeah. And the, the CBP one app and all that kind of stuff, that's just another extension of prevention through deterrence by making it harder for people and 
pushing people to ways that they can try to get through or, you know, what they think they can try to get through easier. And as Jacqueline said, it's just, it's become more and more deadlier. And every year the the numbers go up of confirmed deaths, but that doesn't count the amount of people that go missing every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the people who like border patrol don't find and they're, they, you know, their numbers are only the people who they found and that's the areas they're going. Like if people die further North or. Yeah. Absolutely. Or the deaths that they they deliberately miscategorize as non-migrant yeah. deaths. They're just John Doe's, Jane Doe, like yeah. whatever. You know, they just say like, oh, you know, um, cause of death unclear or cause of death for exposure. But they don't necessarily call it a migrant death, even though it's someone, you know, traveling with a backpack in the desert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just out for a hike. Yeah. yeah. And they, their ID you know, can't like say that they were migrating just because they had, you know, uh, Honduran passport on them. Um, yeah. That happens all the time, too. So all of this is like, we don't know the scope of the cruelty. Like, it's just what's scary is that, like, it's so much bigger than we even know. Even like those of us that are like in it every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no numbers. Like, I, I I would, in a sense, love to. In a sense, it'd be horrible. I don't think it should matter. Like, I don't think it should matter how many people. Like, every single one of those is a tragedy. And it's someone's mom or, or dad or brother or sister um i kind of wanted to uh to maybe talk about like one incident that um if if you're comfortable doing it like that you might be familiar with that i think can give people a sense of how dehumanizing this is and how cruel this is um you guys i I know you're familiar with it but uh the 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 young women who died on the shrine trail in um was it winter of 2020 or winter of 2021 Yes, that was uh, February 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's right before COVID. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. 
and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So for people who aren't as familiar... Can, I spoke a little bit about it in our series, but can you describe kind of the the process that, if, if you're comfortable, I know it's like a, it's a pretty horrible thing, uh, but can you describe like, like how they crossed and, and, and what happened to them? Uh, I mean, we can give you like some of the background that was like in a newspaper article that we had come to learn. Yeah, I mean, sure. We, we have type of like direct communication no, with family. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're not in contact. I just like I think it would be helpful for people to realize that like, you know, this this is what happened to them. And then also that you guys have been able to respond after that happened to to, to like at least try and, and help like deploy kind of resources to make that a bit less of a treacherous crossing. So um uh, as the situation was unfolding, uh it was nighttime and there was a, like a freak storm that came through eastern San Diego County around uh, around the area of, I think, like Live Oak Springs, Mount Laguna area. Um, and it was just, you know, raining and, and cold before, but like later on that day, it kind of turned into snow. And just turn into heavy winds, uh, like zero visibility, snowstorm. And these three sisters that were from Oaxaca, uh, who've crossed over for work multiple times, came, worked, went back home, you know, for, you know, whatever season, um, came back, worked, went back home. And it was my understanding that they were trying to save up enough money from what they made here in the United States to open up their own business. And so um, the the day came when they were crossing over. They, uh, they came through, I think, like in the, the Campo area, I think it was. And they were led by two brothers that um, had crossed previously in the same spot and knew the the trail of which to go. But I believe it was their first time actually leading people through and not just themselves coming through. So they, uh, you know, 
they remember the way got up close to where the uh, the shrine is of the shrine trail there's a, a little shrine up there that people would um you know leave little um little symbols and tokens and little uh items behind um mostly to you know uh, the virgin guadalupe and from that point it is that that's the last time you can be hiking on that trail that far north and turn around and still see mexico anything beyond that it's kind of like the point of like you can't see mexico like you got to keep moving forward you've already gone you know at this point it's close to 30 i think air miles so like you know you know walking miles is a lot more than that yeah and they were at this uh kind of like rock boulder outcropping just about five minutes walk shy of the shrine the shrine when the sisters couldn't keep going anymore and because of the extreme weather and the extreme cold they were soaking wet from the rain and then the you know sub-freezing temperatures with the snowstorm uh, they couldn't keep going anymore. And so they were kind of huddled up underneath uh, this boulder. Uh, it was the only spot they kind of gave like a little bit of shelter from that storm. Yet, I mean, those rocks are, you know, ice cubes, you know, being out there for that long. So the two brothers, I believe, left to try to get cell phone signal. Uh, because you know you're you're up pretty high in the mountains. I think that elevation up there uh, on the mountain, I think it's somewhere around five thousand feet yeah. more or less at that that location where where um, where, where they passed away. And um, the brothers that took off to try to get cell phone range to call them, you know EMS, which turns out to be you know border patrol in that region. And so got a hold of Border Patrol. Uh, Border Patrol arrived to where the brothers were. And first thing, you know, before, you know, rushing to try to make a rescue or anything, they, you know, detained and arrested the, the brothers for, you know, for, you know, human smuggling, trafficking, you know, just, you know, being coyotes. And then they put in efforts of trying to rescue by the time i believe that they got to the three sisters two of them had already passed away and there was one that was still barely alive unconscious and due to the weather as board patrol has stated um the agents the borstar you know rescue agents the search and trauma rescue they had to take off they couldn't airlift the last remaining sister out because there was zero visibility the helicopter couldn't even get like find them couldn't get like anywhere close to them couldn't hover because the wind was blowing so hard uh it was just about a whiteout condition so i mean the most you know fucked situation possible and border patrol in order to make sure 
it didn't turn into uh from a, a triple fatality to uh, however many of them there were i think there was three or four that were out there so to to you know in order to save their lives they they took off they put the the last remaining sister like in a like a puffy overall type of situation and they uh they had taken her wet clothes they cut her wet clothes off her and you know we're you know actively trying to warm her with like heat packs and wrapping her and so they took off and kind of just like left her you know with basically as they said the the best you know chances possible of survival even though someone being left on their own in that condition there's zero chances of survival yeah. uh border patrol took off uh, allegedly injured themselves you know in doing so got frostbite etc um i think it was the next day came back out for the uh what turned out to be the recovery and all three sisters had passed away uh you know from you know freezing to death and so as we learned about that you know as the situation was unfolding we uh reached out to the the journalist who wrote the article in local San Diego Union Tribune. Uh, his name's Alex Riggins. Yeah. And through, you know, some back and forth contact, he was covering the trial of the two brothers that uh, brought the sisters through their uh, in court for their deaths and reached out to see if we could find out any information, if he could, if Alex could let us know, like, maybe where the shrine trail was or maybe where the location of the recovery was just something that we would have so we can, you know, put it on a map, figure out how to get there and get boots on the ground to leave supplies, you know, a few times a year, whether it's going to be really hot or really cold. We wanted to make sure that, you know, we responded to the crisis as we found out about it. Uh, that's something that we unfortunately have had to do all too common in this work is that's unfortunately the way that we learn. Yeah. When it's too late sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of we have to learn after it's too late. And that's part of our, you know, expansion of areas that we cover. Uh, that's how we learn stuff. Um, and that's how we work at preventing you know further suffering and, and further deaths so we uh got more or less uh, a a good location and one of our team members at the time he uh he went out uh, on a weekday that he had off and he just went kind of driving around the area and started hiking out in in this area that looked like from the photos that were in the newspaper could have been this location and he put in a long hike that day and he found the clothing that was um removed from the last sister he found the uh like the puffy overalls he found a bunch of medical equipment like emergency equipment that was used for um you know the three sisters during that process and shortly after that i think it was just like a couple of weeks we 
got uh, together uh, some of our strongest hikers and we decided to go out there and leave a bunch of supplies. And that is, it is a hard, hard hike. Um, whether you're, you know, carrying 35, 40 pounds on your back, or you're just carrying, you know, a backpack with like a bottle of water and some food, like it, it's hard no matter what. So we got up there and we left supplies and you know, we've been going back usually before seasons change, uh, whether it gets hot or it gets cold. And we, we track to see if, um, you know, anything has been taken and it doesn't appear that that trail gets too much use, but it does get some use. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I don't know if, if the three sisters passing away there had anything to do with like future travel for people on the shrine trail or, or what, but, um, you know, we, we made that commitment in their honor and to prevent anything like this ever happening again. Yeah. Sent me a very sad, very sad situation. And like, yeah, it, 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 so many things have to go wrong and so many people have to like turn a blind eye, I guess for for three people to die. Uh, Like, you know, there's, um, blatant negligence on the part of border patrol very regularly given that they are supposedly like as james mentioned the emergency medical service that's out there um and there is outright blatant deadly discrimination that occurs um when it comes to providing emergency services for migrants in this case they prioritize apprehension over saving people um every any moment is going to count and regardless of what the conditions were those are the conditions and that's the story that they're reporting um i think we rightfully are skeptical of anything that they say when it comes to rescues and how they prioritize um doing so when we have seen um entirely the opposite (laughs) occur on a regular basis when they have the opportunity to provide aid um them electing to not do so um, you know, going back to Hakumba, when people were out there and they had nothing, they weren't being provided a sip of water for days and days and days. Border Patrol could have done that. If they are the emergency services, they could have provided emergency aid. Um, when it comes to a rescue like this, they have the agency. They are the agency. They have the agency to deprioritize processing somebody for apprehension and prioritizing rescue. And they chose not to do it. Like time and time again, we see these situations. And I think like when, you know, before we started recording, you asked like, what's the thing that like we want to talk about that doesn't often get talked about. And I think it's this, I think it's the, it's not just like the surveillance and the patrolling and all of that stuff that dehumanizes migrants, but like when they're in danger, they're regarded as less than human by the because the only agency that's out there to help them is like the reason that they're in danger in the first place. So um, we have come across multiple um, search and rescues that aren't migrant related, just being out in the desert where either a U.S. citizen or in one instance, a tourist was lost in the desert and their response is night and day. When there's a migrant that's lost and we are calling for assistance you know any kind of can a search be initiated can we get like the response is so blase and minimal and there's no 
accounting. There's no holding them accountable for acting or failing to act. Right. And it's blatant. Like, and I think that's the the thing that like the general public that isn't involved in this work, like should know about how cruel it is and how little the response is when somebody is lost, when they're dying, when they're dead, like, us having to call the coroner repeatedly to have um, children's bones picked up, um, that would not happen if that child was not a presumed migrant. So this is like, we have story after story after story of like situations like this is just one tragedy, but there is a lot of could have, should have, would have like on the end of like eight organizations that we carry. And it doesn't seem to ever be like a shared weight with any of the agencies that actually have the ability to respond to this kind of thing in like an organized way. They don't care. They don't do anything about it. Yeah. And there's like so much money spent on our border, right? Like uh, I remember in Hukumba, mm-hmm. I was like sitting underneath this thing for shade. And then I look at them like, oh yeah, this thing costs a million dollars, right? That little trailer with the solar panels that intercepts the signals. Uh, like, and they didn't give these people a bottle of water. Like, like all the water came from other people, uh, from random San Diego people who bought it, right? Like, and it, it's just such a strange priority. Well, not strange. It's a cruel and horrible priority choice, right? To prioritize that kind of like enforcement over human lives, like which are being lost. And it's the same. Like, you know, I've reported in Arizona a ton. I spent a lot of time there. I spent a lot of time uh, here. I, reported in texas a couple of times like it's the same all across the border right the priority is not rescuing people it's and it's not even particularly enforcing the law as it's written it's just stopping people coming here selectively though yeah selectively because they do let a significant amount of people through like even like in hakumba when people that weren't familiar with this whole kind of like smoke and mirror show of the border were coming and responding they were saying like well why are they letting them through why is this open over here why is like the amount of surveillance um you know we've had people come out on water drops and say like oh should we be hiding the water should we be doing this and that should we like they have eyes on the whole desert so yeah and it's they they do their the point is to stop people from coming through but not completely because that that's labor that's coming through you yeah. know that, that it, it they're they're selective in how much they like you know how much the the gasket is being opened and shut yeah and in different sectors at different times like it seems like things are done and even like yeah there are the other thing i think that people who don't live on the border don't realize is to what degree every single person here whether they give a shit or not is surveilled because they live near the border like yeah but we saw that in 2018 with a lot of a lot of friends of mine who who can't go to Mexico anymore, right? Who have flagged passports. Yeah, you too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so many people I know. I yeah, I don't know how I went over a ton at that time, but I guess managed to avoid it. Um, but yeah, it's it's that, and then like I have been in the middle of nowhere in the desert and found cameras, uh, surveillance towers, right? Like, um stuff that would not be and the constitution is largely irrelevant but like there wouldn't be legal or just like unjustifiable anywhere else and like 
this spans from here to like our Otham friends in, in Arizona to Texas, right? Like if you live on the border, like, or any within a hundred miles of the border, right? Like the border can come to you. It doesn't matter if you care or not. It doesn't matter if, if you consider yourself to be uh, like a, an immigrant to the US or if, if you've sort of decided that that doesn't apply to you or you don't care about those people, like um, then it doesn't matter. That surveillance still impacts you. And often it impacts like our indigenous friends, right? Like like my my Otham friends, Kumeyaay friends had their graveyards bulldozed to build the wall. And um, it, yeah, even if you don't care, even if you think the wall is great, like your cell phones still go through the Stingray Tower. I know it's wild, like how much people who are like very, you know, right wing, anti, like, you know, pro like freedom and all this stuff, <laughs> like will very readily give up those freedoms and in, in, in exchange for like constant surveillance, like if it justifies the means of like, you know, their bigotry or like whatever, like their worldview mm -hmm. is like, they're, they're suddenly like very pro border patrol, very pro cop, very Well, that's like in direct conflict with like everything else that they're saying. Right. But yeah, it's freedom for who, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, it also goes with the same people are saying, well, like, well, if you're not breaking the law, then what do you have to worry I, about? Yeah. Well, everything starts at the border. So the surveillance, the facial recognition, the plate scanners, all that stuff started at the border. And now we see that just recently, like the San Diego City Council approved to have the like the streetlight cameras yeah. and all that kind of stuff, the lamps and all those, you know, hundreds of cameras that are going to be out there, like with that same type of technology. And like, well, if you're not breaking the laws, like, okay, well, give a little bit of time until you're not breaking the law, and then like stuff still happens. I mean, that's that's how you know things you know snowball. Hey everyone, shortly after we finish talking about why San Diego's lampposts are also spies, uh, my internet once again died. Uh, so that's where we're going to end it today. It's already been a long episode, um, but what I would like you all to know is that um, you can find Border Kindness online. You can find them on Instagram. Uh, you can find James there at Brolo El Cordero. Um, you should probably be able to work out how to spell that. Um, you can find them on Facebook and you can find them on Instagram. Um, and you can pretty much find them anywhere you go on the internet by uh, searching Border Kindness. Uh, and like James said, they in his, in his I'm looking at his Instagram profile right now. So it's Brolo El Cordero. I guess B-R-O-L-O-E-L-C-O-R-D-E-R-O. -E -E uh, James has a wish list, an Amazon wish list. So if you're not close to San Diego, then you can uh, you can just click on there and buy them something. I'm sure you could collect donations and send those as well. Um, so there are a lot of different ways you could help. Uh, but I hope you all enjoyed this. If you're in town and, and you want to help go hike with them, uh, you can reach out to them on social media as well. And I'm sure they'd be happy to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? 
And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.